must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream. Welcome to Great Men Back Then. Here's your host, Lauren Scott. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and welcome back to Great Men Back Then, the show where we talk about great people in American history. This week, we will be talking about Paul Harvey, an American radio broadcaster for ABC News Radio. He is most well known for his famous The Rest of the Story segments, which we will actually spend the majority of our time today focusing on. Harvey has kind of an interesting life in the beginning. He was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he was the son of a policeman who was unfortunately killed by robbers in 1921. So Harvey was only three years old at this time. So that was a very tragic thing for him to go through and live with for the rest of his life. He was actually pretty young whenever he got involved in radio. He had a teacher tell him that he had a very nice voice and recommended that he start working at a local radio station. And so he started to do that. And he actually worked there at first, just cleaning the building kind of as a janitor. But he was eventually allowed to fill in on the air by reading commercials and news. So that's kind of where he got his first start in radio. So it was something that he had an interest in even when he was a young teenager. Now, what better way to show you who Paul Harvey truly was than for you to hear some of his best work? For the majority of this episode, I will be reading from a book that has some of Paul Harvey's best work. I mentioned earlier his most famous segment was The Rest of the Story. And if you don't know what it is, you will hear what it is whenever I read these stories. Without further ado, let's jump right in. The first one I'm going to read is called The Mouse That Roared. Steve Morris was not a typical boy, but when you're nine years old, the desire to be typical is very strong. Steve was born in Saginaw, Michigan. When he was very young, his folks moved to Detroit to a little apartment on Hastings Street. Of all the people and things Steve has since forgotten and remembered from those early years, one woman stands out in his mind. One woman encouraged him and gave him the courage to be extraordinary. Steve's elementary school teacher, Mrs. Beneducey. Of course, Mrs. Beneducey was a wise woman. She realized that mere words to a nine-year-old might not carry much weight. With an unwitting aid of a little gray mouse, she seized instead upon a particular opportunity. And from that day on, Steve knew his greatest pride, the calling of a life. It happened in a teeny grade school classroom in Detroit, the rest of the story. Mrs. Beneducey called her class to order. Come now, Jessie and Annette, settle down, people. We're going to open with history today. The little ones squirmed in their seats, suppressing the nervous giggles of infant inmates wishing to be sprung. I know you'd rather be outside playing, said Mrs. Beneducey. It's a lovely day, 
But if you learn nothing in life, all you'll ever know how to do is play. The teacher gave a sympathetic half-smile. Young Steve Morris was quiet. Amy, asked Mrs. Beneducey, who was Abraham Lincoln? Amy stared at her desk. Uh, he, uh, had a beard. The class collapsed with laughter. Steve Morris, said the teacher. Same question. He was the 16th president of the United States, came the answer, solidly, without hesitation. The class was silent once more. Steve's problem was not the answer. He had them all. In fact, little Steve Morris also had a rather remarkable gift. But answers to questions would mean nothing in themselves, unless Steve could be made to realize just how important that gift really was. All right, Mrs. Beneducey continued. Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. He was president during the Civil War. Then she stopped, as though she were listening to something. What's that? asked the teacher, half to herself. Who's making that noise? The puzzled classmates looked at each other. Steve sat quietly. I hear something like scratching. It's very faint, said Mrs. Beneducey. It sounds, it sounds like a mouse. The little girl screamed. Some stood on their chairs with the speed of ascending lightning. Calm down, everyone, said the teacher. It's nothing to get excited about. Steve, will you help me find the poor little creature? Steve sat straight upright in his chair, brightening considerably. Okay, he said. Now everyone be quiet. In the sudden stillness, Steve cocked his head, hesitated for a moment, and pointed slowly to the wastebasket. He's right over there, said Steve proudly. I can hear him. And so he was, a frightened little gray mouse that had been rummaging beneath the waste paper, hoping to go undiscovered. But he had been discovered by little Steve Morris, whom nature had given a remarkable pair of ears in compensation for having denied him eyes since birth. So the class settled back to business, and the little gray mouse became a mascot. In the heart of small, unsighted Steve, a pride was born, and that pride is with him still. After the incident, Mrs. Beneducey would continue to encourage the talent that the whole world now knows and respects, and she always reminded Steve of the little gray mouse that once made its home in a wastebasket. By accident? In time, the marvelous ears of Steve Morse gave popular music something to be proud of a single composer-musician-producer with five Grammys and 75, 17 gold singles, four gold albums, four platinum records. For Once Upon a Time, A Little Gray Mouse Roared, gave a small boy confidence in what nature had given him, and Steve Morris, from the time he was 10, for his gifted ears, was never known as anything but Little Stevie Wonder. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and this is Great Men Back Then. Today, we are talking about Paul Harvey and reading some of his most famous segments, The Rest of the Story. The next story we will be reading by Paul Harvey is The Frame. Now, 
I'm going to tell you a mystery story, a real-life mystery story, but I'm going to tell you first how it ends. It's important that you know, so you can keep the facts straight. The colonel was married, and he also had a mistress. Indeed, the colonel was just about to leave his wife for the other woman, when his wife decided to kill him. All right, do you have this? It's important. The colonel's wife wants to do away with her husband, so she conceives the perfect crime. The wife will make it appear as though her husband, the colonel, has murdered her. The authorities would do the rest. The colonel would be tried, convicted, executed. His wife could turn up later, with amnesia. The perfect crime, right? And, mystery buffs, please don't feel cheated because you know more than you should. Despite all that you've heard, you'd never guess the rest of the story. One frosty night in December of 1926, a car was found at the bottom of a chalk pit in Newlands Corner, England. Inside the car was a fur coat belonging to the colonel's wife. The woman had disappeared, and the police suspected murder. The colonel himself was interrogated first. Where had he been all night in question? Well, the colonel explained he'd been at a dinner party. What was the occasion? The colonel appeared embarrassed. The dinner party was for himself and his lady. They were going to announce their engagement. The detectives looked at each other. Was the colonel at the party all evening? No. He had received a telephone call from his wife. She had heard what was going on and was about to come to the party to make a scene. Naturally, the colonel had to go home for a while to calm his wife. Did he? Yes. The colonel had gone home. No one was there, and he had returned to the party. Had the colonel and his wife been on good terms prior to the disappearance? Yes. Well, no. Not exactly. They had their disagreements. In fact, they'd had quite a row the morning before the dinner party about the colonel's lady. If the detectives prejudged the colonel guilty, you can imagine why. His testimony was incriminating. Meanwhile, a force of 2,000 was organized to search a 40-square-mile area for the missing body. The authorities dragged a deep water hole near the chalk pit where her car was found. Tracking dogs and light planes scored the area. Publicity mounted steadily. The London newspapers were calling the incident the crime of the century. The Daily News offered £100 for any information leading to the solution of the mystery. And who is being asked not to leave town? The colonel, of course. Obvious motive. The mistress' involvement and no alibi. Of course, you know he didn't do it. You know his wife was hiding out, waiting for her husband to be convicted of murder and sent to the gallows. You know, because I told you. But there's something you didn't know. The colonel's wife had planned everything. She had left the ignition key off when she pushed her car into the pit so the police would know that it was pushed and not driven. She had even left a fur coat in the car. It was very cold that night, remember? When investigators would find the coat, they would not suspect she had left the scene herself. Yes, the colonel's wife had figured it all out, except for one thing. There was no place for her to hide. 
12 days after her disappearance, her famous face was recognized on the other side of England. Not only was the colonel's wife well known, but she, of all people, should have been able to get away with murder. For the colonel's wife, the real-life almost murderess, was the author of fiction's most successful whodunits. She was the mistress of mystery, Agatha Christie. The next story I will be reading by Paul Harvey is For the Love of Jim. Jack and Jim were the best of friends, devoted, inseparable. So when Jim lost both his legs in a railroad accident, Jack did everything he could to help. At first, Jim was certain his career with the railroad was finished. Then the company gave him another job, as a signalman. His outpost was to be a lonely little shop, more than 200 miles from anywhere. Jack went along to be whatever help he could be on the new job, anything he could to help his crippled friend. But the lengths of self-sacrifice to which Jack was willing to go are the rest of the story. Jim had come out of the hospital with no legs. He'd barely recover from the trauma of a double amputation when the railroad had given him the new assignment. Jim would live in a little wooden shack about 150 yards from the signal tower. It was going to be lonely out there, and there would be myriad difficulties and adjustments. But Jack would help, for a while anyway. It was hoped for long enough for Jim to overcome those initial difficulties and make those first adjustments. In the beginning, Jack stuck around, mostly for company. He swept out the shack and pumped water from the well and tended the garden and made himself useful in all the ways legless Jim could not. There was a little trolley, a single-seater, that led from the shack to the signal tower. Jack pushed Jim on the trolley several times a day and stood there while Jim operated the big levers in sequence. And, eventually, Jack got so familiar with Jim's schedule that he began to walk out and operate the signal system himself. Sure enough, pretty soon, in addition to house cleaning and the rest, Jack gradually began to take over all these duties for the railroad, though officially he was not an employee. There was a lot to remember on that job, a lot to be done. If a point had to be adjusted farther up the line, Jack would have to listen for a passing engine, flag him down, and give him a special key to make the adjustment. Daily responsibilities at the signal tower included working the levers that set the signals, as well as the tower controls that open the closed siding switches. There was a lot going on at the lonely little outpost, and soon Jack was doing all the work, but he never complained. After all, Jim was his friend, Jim had just gone through a terrible ordeal. It was the least Jack could do, for a while anyway. But a while turned to weeks, and weeks turned to months, and months turned to years. For more than nine years, Jack kept house for Jim. Jack pumped water from the well, tended the garden, trudged out to the signal tower each day to operate the heavy equipment. Until one day... After a bout with tuberculosis, Jack died. But in all those years, Jack, who had never before worked on the railroad, Jack, who had never before seen a signal tower in his life, never made a mistake. In nine years, 
He never threw a switch incorrectly. He never started a car in error. In nine years, there was not one accident or even a narrow miss on the Port Elizabeth main line because of Jack. Jack is buried in Cape Colony, South Africa, not far from the outpost where he worked for almost a decade. For his love of his friend, his grave is a silent testament of selflessness. And I don't think I mentioned that Jack, the friend who cleaned house and pumped water and tended garden and manned the switch tower that ran the railroad, was not a man at all. He was a baboon. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and this is Great Men Back Then. Today, we are talking about Paul Harvey and reading some of his most famous segments, The Rest of the Story. All right, now I have time to read one more story, and this one is called The Night Sin City Died. It's been called the greatest single tragedy in the history of that great Midwestern state. October 8, 1871, the night the wicked city to the north burned down. More than 1,500 people lost their lives as fiery tongues lapped at the waters of Lake Michigan. A portrait of the northern Midwest in 1871 might well have been described as a desert with gently shifting seasons. From the late winter all through that long toward summer, virtually bone dry. A light shower on September 5th kissed the parched earth like an eyedropper squeezed into a frying pan, and then nothing. The entire state cringed helplessly under nature's blowtorch. And the city to the north was waiting. How odd. Lake Michigan, a freshwater ocean, sleeping at her elbow to the east, and the long river snaking its way through the heart of town. Water everywhere, except where it counted. Water all around, mocking destiny. And the unsuspecting city to the north was waiting. October 7th, Saturday. Hotel transients talked about the weather. Railroad men about their shipments. Theater goers about the play tonight. But Saturday passed, and on Saturday, all hell broke loose. The mighty roar of the flames in the dead of night was most terrible to hear, said those who lived to recall. A heat so intense the very earth seemed to melt like butter. Beneath the towering crimson, pale yellow and white, men ran like ants for the river. The bridges ablaze, some lifted their heads from the watery cover to inhale pure fire. With the sky a ghostly, ghastly midnight sun, the night waned slowly. When the devilish rhapsody of the flames and screams subsided, the city was almost dead. Some said she paid for her sins, like Sodom, more than 2,000 years before. True, the Saturday night joints, jam-packed with the drunken, the senseless, the incoherent, the unsuspecting, could have appeared like live bait in some moralist metaphor. But you know the truth, or at least most of it. What you may not know was the name of the city whose demise you've just relived. Pestigo, Wisconsin. You'd probably not heard of the Great Pestigo Fire because of a simultaneous tragedy. For while 1,500 lost their lives in Pestigo, publicity favored another fire on that very same night in which 300 died. The other fire in a city of the South you know a great deal about, the Great Chicago Fire. And now you know the rest of the story. 
I hope you guys have enjoyed some of those Paul Harvey stories. I may do a second series on this just because I love Paul Harvey and I think it's good to remember him by reading these stories. You have been listening to Great Men Back Then with Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.